Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. We will mainly be in this text this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And so you do well to have a Bible open to that place. It will help you to follow along in the things that we're going to be talking about for a few minutes in this portion of our worship. Thank you so much for being here. We want to say welcome to those who are visiting with us. We're glad that you're here. Those who are visiting from here in the community, we'd love to talk to you more about what we do here. If you're interested in being a part of the Fairview family, the group here as we meet and work together, uh, we'd love to talk to you more about that. Our elders would love to sit down and talk to you about that, get to know you, and uh, have you to welcome you to be a part of our family. So just let us know about that, but we're happy that you're here. Thanks for visiting with us this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1 says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living, and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. A few years ago, a major survey by the Pew Research Center found a marked increase in the number of people who, Americans, who when asked what their religious affiliation is, they marked the option called none. From 2007 to 2015, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not nuns, like women in a convent, the number of nuns from 2007 to 2015 moved from 16% of Americans to 23%. So... 23% of Americans, about one in four, have no religious affiliation. And that's led to a lot of hand-wringing. It's clear that our broader society is becoming more secular and less interested in spiritual things, and it appears that that's beginning to have an impact on religious life in America. And those kinds of information have a large impact on Christians and our view of the work of God. We begin to ask the question, how do we approach a society that is growing less religious? And those discussions have an impact on the things that we talk about as a church, what we teach, what we support, how we engage the world around us, what we offer people when they come here. And particularly, there is a myth that accompanies this. The myth is, if you want to survive... You must change to accommodate the culture. And so usually when you see a news article about something like these studies, what you'll see is churches are dying. Will they adapt? And the, the myth underlying that is that we've got to change what we do and how we do it. We've got to change what we teach and how we teach it or else nobody's going to believe anymore. Nobody's going to come to church anymore and churches will just die out. And it is that myth that I want to challenge this morning, what we're going to call the water-it-down myth. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that these issues are not new, that these kinds of things were going on and these kinds of discussions were going on during the time of the New Testament. What I want to do is to take a moment to examine God's approach to cultural change. When things change in the world around us and those changes begin to bleed over into God's people, what does God say we need to do about that? Do we need to change? Do we need to update? How should we respond? So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, what we're reading are some of the last words that Paul ever wrote. And he wrote them to his protege, co-worker, Timothy, 
about how you need to practice preaching the gospel going forward. In verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You can hear it. It is a rousing call to action. He says, I charge you before God, the Jesus, the judge of all. And he says, you preach the word. Timothy needs to be ready to preach the word in any and every condition. That's what that means, in season and out of season. Okay, we are in the football off season, right? Okay, things are not as fun Football is not as exciting in the off-season as during the season. Sometimes it's exciting, sometimes it's not. You preach when it's exciting and when it's not, when people want it and when they don't, when they're happy and when they're sad. You keep preaching the word. Don't stop just because conditions may change. Why? Verse 3. In verse 3 it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. He says, you keep preaching in whatever season it is because times are changing. And there will be a time when people won't want to listen. And you've got to be prepared for that. So I want to talk about three things from this text. The first thing Paul says is that times will change. The time will come, he says, when things will not be what they are now. Part of Paul's instruction is being aware of the shifting winds of culture and how those winds of culture will then affect people that Timothy has to deal with. Things won't always be the way they are now. Turn back a page to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, it says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Times of difficulty. Or people will change. Things are going to be different than they are right now. Now, the implication is things may be fine right now, but they won't always be the way that they are. Isn't it an interesting thing that a phrase like times will change, it's so obvious as to not even need stating. But have you noticed that we don't respond well to change? We don't like change, even though things always change. Isn't that odd? Especially when we know those changes are going to be for the worse. What we tend to do is instead of accepting that and preparing for that, what we tend to do is to be afraid of it. What Paul is doing here is preparing Timothy so that when the time comes and these changes come, you will be ready. What's comforting, though, about these statements to me is that God is not surprised when times change. He said they were going to change, and it's not as if the gospel can't withstand change, as if God never foresaw what was going to happen in 2019 in America. God, he made this gospel, and it worked back then, but he didn't know what we know. See, Paul is telling Timothy, no, the gospel is going to be the same. The word is going to be the same. You preach the word, even though you know times will change. Second, he also says that people will change. Look in 2 Timothy 4, back in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So times will change and people will change. Now that doesn't mean that people are somehow going to be fundamentally different than how they've always been. What it means is the broader changes in society will lead to people changing throughout the course of their lives. We are going to change. We won't stay the same. And it also means that sometimes groups of people will lose their identity. Groups of people like churches. 
And so he says people will not endure sound teaching anymore. They won't want to listen. It says in verse 3, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So they're going to be motivated by itching ears. That is, they will want to hear things that appeal to them more than they want to hear things that are true. And Paul says that's a shift. You need to be ready for that shift. And because that's their motivation, they have itching ears, they have certain things they want to hear, they are going to accumulate for themselves teachers. Or your version, if you read the old King James, says heap up teachers. It's a fascinating idea, isn't it? That whatever people want to hear, suddenly there emerges a market for it, and suddenly teachers fill that market. I tell you, the internet has really just helped that be even more clear. Because it doesn't matter what you believe, you will find someone on the internet who agrees with you. Just go to Google and check it out. In fact, I have had a number of times where I would study with someone and I would present what I believe the Bible to teach. And by the time I met with that person again, they had gone to the internet and found somebody who would argue with me. They didn't want to believe what I was saying. And so they found someone who taught what they wanted to believe. They heaped up, they accumulated for themselves teachers. Now that's a warning. It is a warning to us as teachers and as listeners. Just because we like something doesn't make it true. In fact, I would go so far as to say if, if we like something, that means we should double down on the investigation as to whether it is true. It should make us suspicious of it. Because we always want things to be true if we like them. And he says there is a warning where we might become people who would rather hear what pleases us than what God actually says. In verse 4 then, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So it will lead them to pursuing myths, seeking out things that are not true. All of that stemming from the desire to satisfy itching ears. Yet it appears that they don't realize they've left the truth. They think they're still believing the truth, but they have gone off into myths. So these are the kinds of people that Timothy is going to have to deal with and preach the gospel among. It's not clear if Paul is saying these are church people or the broader world, but really it doesn't matter because Peter, I mean Peter, Timothy is going to have to deal with them. Timothy is going to have to deal with these kinds of attitudes. In fact, turn back a page with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to go back and forth between these texts because I think they are parallel in many ways. In 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. So if you want to know why times are going to be hard, he says in verse 1, times of difficulty, the reason is, verse 2, people are going to be evil and evil people harm others. They only care about themselves and what benefits them. They are too proud to be grateful. They don't have love for others. They don't have love for God. They never restrain themselves. They do not keep their word. Most of all, they love pleasure over everything. But I think the most chilling part of this description is in verse 5. 
where he says they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. That even when they are fully corrupt, they still appear godly. Now, I want, with this picture of the world that Paul paints in your mind, the idea of people who love pleasure more than God, who love themselves more than anything else, who care nothing about anything good, please remember that when we cater to a godless society, that's what we cater to. That when we refuse to correct such people, that's the kind of behavior we're endorsing. When we talk about tolerating people and their sin, that's what we're encouraging. That when we water down our message to appeal to people who are seeking myths, this is the kind of attitude we are perpetuating. These are evil people who need to be changed by the power of God. And we should have a certain response to them, but it is not the response that we want to endorse them in their behavior. So Paul warns, people are going to change, and those changes are often going to be for the worse, and that that's going to have an impact on how we live among them and how we share the gospel with them. The third thing he says here is that teachings will change. Let's go back to chapter 4 and 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So they'll heap up teachers. They'll turn their attention to myths. They will suddenly have people who suit their passions rather than God's pleasure. You see this throughout the Bible, actually. You know, when the Israelites begin to believe that that whole anti-idolatry thing is too restrictive, well, suddenly there become to be prophets who will be okay, priests even, who will be okay with idols. In the New Testament, almost as soon as Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends to heaven, you've got people coming around saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Almost immediately, there is false teaching in the New Testament era. Because there are people who want certain things and they begin to have teachings that justify what they want to do. And so it continues today. We have people today who say that there are no real miracles in the New Testament. We have people today who say that there's, anything, there's nothing you can do that will affect your salvation in any way. If you want to believe or obey, it doesn't really matter. You can't change it. There are people today who say, you know what? To respond to God and have eternal life with God, all you got to do is check this box or pray this prayer. Things that don't have anything to do with what the Bible actually says about those topics. They instead become the teaching people want to believe. And so teachings change. Turn with me back a page to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 6. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 6. It says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women... Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. They're always learning, it says in verse 7. They're always learning. They are spiritually interested people yet they are never able to actually come to knowledge. Doesn't it make you wonder what they're learning? What are they spending all their time and energy investing their minds in if they are always learning but they never know the truth? Paul keeps talking to Timothy about the truth. Have you noticed? 
These people know the truth. Some people oppose the truth. Some turn their ears away from the truth. He is saying this is what you can rely on, but you also need to know that teachings are going to change. What we're getting at here is that there will always be a religious pretext and justification when society begins to change and we want to change with it. That is, when I want teachers who will please my passions and my itching ears, there will always be some logic that they use that sounds pretty good. Teachings will change, but that doesn't mean that they're true. So the question of the text is how do Christians respond when times and people and teachings begin to change? And I want to show you very clearly that Paul's answer is don't change with them. Go with me back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You be ready all the time. You preach the word. The word here is probably a reference to the Old Testament that he's already talked about at the end of chapter 3, the sacred writings. You preach the word. You preach the truth. You know what comes from God, and you don't ever stop preaching it just because times and people and teachings change around you. You be the rock who goes back to God's word no matter what. Don't change with them. In verse 5, look in verse 5 of 2 Timothy 4. It says, as for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So they will turn away, but you be sober-minded. I find this fascinating. That word sober-minded in the Greek actually just means keep your head. Sounds like the advice we give to our kids. We send them off to college, right? Okay, keep your head on straight. Things are going to change. Things are going to get crazy. You keep your head. And so he tells Timothy, you be sober Don't change with them. He also says in verse 5 there, you endure suffering. Don't complain. Don't quit no matter what goes on around you. He says you do the work of an evangelist, which is primarily to preach the word. You fulfill your ministry. When everybody else is changing, you remember your commitment to God. You don't just change with them. Turn back a page to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. He says... Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he says, evil people and imposters are going to go from bad to worse. They're going to get worse and worse. But you, he says, as for you... You don't change with them. You remember what you learn. You know what is true, and you stick to what is true. All right. Please understand that when Paul says don't change with them, he is not saying you can't have any awareness of any updates in culture. You have to live in the Stone Age. Don't change. He is not saying you resist progress, technology. You don't talk like the people around you and don't use any of the words that they use. Sometimes we're going to talk like the world. We just shouldn't talk in evil ways like the world. He also does not mean, and this is important, so please hear me. Paul is not saying that we shouldn't evaluate how we are appealing to the people in our time and culture. 
Paul talks about that himself in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, I became a servant to all that I might win them. And he says, I was willing to compromise my own, you know, personality. I was willing to become a different kind of person to appeal to people. He was always focused on how to help them. So he's not saying don't be like the world and updating or having technology. He's not saying don't think about how you're appealing to people. What he is saying is Christians don't panic about changing times to the degree that we compromise the integrity of our message. Times change, but truth doesn't change. That's his point. So our response to changing times should be to continue to preach and uphold and live by what we know to be true. That's the point. So what I want to spend the rest of our time with this morning is thinking about what that looks like in 2019 for you and me. In our time, we have seen certain changes, and I want to point out three of them this morning because they are three that I believe we need to not only be aware of, but be prepared to think about how we will respond to them. First, is there is a movement in our time from following the New Testament to following culture. Now, that's probably been around for a long time, but it has lately become more prominent as a result of what's often called the community church movement. And the idea of a community church was that in the beginning, community churches began to send out surveys to the community and ask the question, what do you want in a church? And so they got responses that this is what people... Now, now notice, we're not polling Christians about what Christians want or don't want, but we're polling the community. That's why it's called a community church. We're polling the community some of whom probably have some Christian awareness, but many of whom might not be Christians. And we ask them, what do you want in a church? And so they answer those surveys. They said, we want happy preaching, short, happy preaching. We're not a community church, by the way. <laughs> they want dodgeball, places to play. They want singles ministries. They want daycare. And so, community church said, all right, let's give the people what they want. And they did. And, and without any surprise, community churches swelled. I mean, this is not hard, right? You ask people what they want, you give it to them, and they want it. And they come. What began to happen is that many churches of Christ began to panic. Sometimes you lose people. And they say, you know what, I'd rather go over here and we can play dodgeball. Or I'd rather go over here where somebody's going to watch my kid while I worship. And so many Church of Christ say, you know, we've got to do something. And so what many decided to do is say, you know what, why don't we do what they're doing? Everything that they're doing, let's start spending our money on that. Let's start changing our appeal. I mean, after all, they must be on to something if they've got so many people coming. And suddenly, our focus shifts from following the New Testament to giving the culture what they're asking for. Do you see the shift? Where before, our appeal was, we're going to try to follow the New Testament and be Christians like you read about in the Bible. Now our appeal becomes, come here and you'll have all the stuff you want. 
I want to remind you of the biblical emphasis we have just studied. That things are going to change and crop up and different emphases are going to happen. And Paul says, you keep preaching the word. People change and trends like these will come and go. In fact, what the polls were like in the beginning of the community church movement 20 or 30 years ago are going to be different today. People want different things, and so churches have to change to keep giving people what they want. I want to remind you that people are going to change. What they want is going to change, but the truth of God doesn't change. The second change I want you to think about is that in our time, the movement has been to make Christianity more about convenience than commitment. That's interesting when you read the New Testament, right? I mean, the New Testament began... Sorry, the, the Christianity began with Jesus dying. And the apostles die for their faith, with the exception of John, as far as we know. A commitment. Take up your cross and follow me. Seek first the kingdom of God. A commitment. In our time, the question has become, what do I like? What is convenient for me? In fact, why don't you just do it for me? You know, all the things that I'm supposed to do, can't you do them? I mean, there are some people that we have. Why don't we hire a guy who will do all that stuff? You know, we, we, need some, we got some people that need to be served. Let, let's pay somebody to do it. We got some people that need the gospel preached to them. Hey, pay that guy. Give him some money. Let him go do that. And so we begin to say, you know, this is not a really about me being transformed in the image of Christ. It is instead about somebody else doing and me being able to be served. Somehow... Along the way, serving Jesus has stopped involving serving Jesus. And has it become instead somebody else serving me because they love Jesus. It's about whether I'm happy or my kids are happy or people are doing to please me or I'm getting enough attention. And that is the movement in our broader society. And at times that is a movement that comes into this group. As Christians, our job is to be faithful to what God has revealed and not to water down God's expectations just to please people. Remember that what we cater to, we encourage. And when we begin to cater to that type of mentality, that just come here because this is the most convenient, we'll take care of everything, we'll take care of all your needs... What we're beginning to say is, it's not really about you making a commitment to Jesus. It's about us doing something and providing a service for you. And I think that shift is important to notice. But most especially, the change I want to point out in our time is the pressure, the movement, to water down parts of the gospel that our culture finds objectionable. You see, this goes back to where we began. The problem is we've got all these people who are no longer affiliated with any religious group. So we say, well, you know, you can't just preach the Bible like you used to. you got to kind of calm it down and make it softer or else nobody will come. People won't respect it. So don't emphasize baptism. I mean, some people don't like that. That can be kind of divisive. Don't talk about that. Now, does the Bible talk about it? Yeah, but, but we shouldn't. Don't talk about morality. I mean, after all, that will 
sound kind of critical and judgmental. Some people get upset about that. It will challenge them. And nobody's perfect anyway, so why would you even talk about that? Don't talk about divorce. That'll drive your numbers down. Jesus' teaching on divorce, well, honestly, it's never been popular. Don't talk about self-discipline. Don't challenge people. Give them things that are going to make them feel good. Emphasize the easier things. Entertainment, community, self-help. That's what preaching should be about. And if you're going to talk about the gospel, well, make it a form of the gospel that people are willing to hear. And you know what's tough about that? We kind of believe them. We kind of think it's true. We believe the watered-down myth that to survive we're going to have to dilute some of our teaching to accommodate the culture. I mean, this is just what people want these days. And there will usually be some talk in this about the survival of the future of the church. You know, the church is not going to survive. You know, we've got to think about the future. We've got to change this and that. I want to take a minute and just challenge this myth. I mentioned earlier about the nuns, the group of people that has risen from 16 to 23% of people who say, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. It's true that the group identifying as nuns is higher, but there is actually only a slight rise in atheism. It's not that atheism is now what's dominating our religious landscape. It's that most of the people who are identifying as nuns are people who used to just say, I was loosely identified with a certain denomination. And now they're saying, no, I'm not. They're just admitting what everybody has known all along, which is they're not very religious people. Now, the fact that 25% of our population has no religious affiliation is still concerning. I mean, that's still a big deal. But the idea that there's some massive shift away from religion or Christianity particularly is just wildly overblown. It's part of a narrative that we're being force-fed that Christianity is declining and secularism is on the rise. But the other thing is, if the water-it-down myth were true, if it were true that when we, we mute those parts of the gospel that people don't like, then we grow, then what you would be seeing is that churches who sell out their teaching would really thrive. And that's actually not what has happened. I read one historian about this who looked at American Christianity generally. And he said that in 1776, the major denominations in America were overtaken by the much stricter Methodists, which by 1850 was the largest denomination in America, Methodism. Methodism has declined in terms of strictness in the last 150 years. They have watered some things down. Southern Baptists have overtaken them, which, according to this historian's reckoning, is a stricter denomination. And I don't know if you pay much attention to trends about denominations, but you will always notice that the fastest-growing Christian denominations in America and really throughout the world are groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the Mormons. Now, those groups have their flaws. I disagree with their teaching. But one of their flaws is not that they water down what they teach. They are strong, they are conservative, and they are extremely dogmatic about what they believe. 
you would think, oh, well, don't they need to water down the gospel? Don't they need to water down their message so people will come? And the answer is no. No, they don't. They thrive because they stick to who they are and what they believe. In other words, watering down the gospel to placate a shifting culture that doesn't know what it thinks or believes, it just doesn't work. So if that's the temptation to say, hey, we're losing people, just know this is not only not an option biblically, it's not a working option practically. So, well, where does that leave us? I want to assert, and I speak for myself, I believe I speak for our elders, that we in this congregation are committed to following and teaching the Bible. We're going to try to do what the Bible says as much as we can, and we're going to try to teach what the Bible says. And I want to affirm that when Paul tells Timothy, you preach the word, that I take that as marching orders for me and for us, that we are going to try in this congregation to have our worship structured around the Word of God and our Bible classes to be focused on the Word of God. My preaching is going to come from the Word of God. I do not want anyone to be a part of this congregation and say they are always learning but never come to a knowledge of the truth. I do not want anyone who is a part of this congregation to leave this assembly saying, well, I don't really feel like we learned anything from the Bible today. I am committed to that. Because I believe it is God's will for us. And I am committed to that because I believe that is what people are looking for. It may not be that everyone in this community who is looking for a congregation is looking for a group that's going to follow the Bible. But I also don't believe that everyone who is a seeker is only seeking to be entertained. I do not believe that everyone who is a seeker is only looking for people who are going to do for them. I believe there are people who are seeking, can I just go somewhere and just follow Jesus? The answer is yes. We want to be a place like that. Now, please understand, I'm not going to be rude. I'm not going to go out of my way to offend anyone. But I'm also not going to apologize for what the Bible teaches. It says what it says. And I want you to know that following the Bible is challenging. It convicts me, and it is hard for me, but I will do my best. So, I pray that you will stand with us in that and follow our lead in that. Let's be people who are truly following God's Word. Would you pray with me about that? God, our Father, we thank you so much for time that you've allowed us to have as we open your word together. We're thankful for this letter that shows us your response to these things that change all around us. Sometimes, Father, we're so confused by the world that we live in. We're confused as to how we can have the best impact on the people around us. We're confused on what we should be and do as a congregation, what our focus should be and where our hearts should be. But you have guided us, Father. You have taught us, and we're thankful for that. Father, I pray that you'll help us as we seek to be a people who are distinct because we follow you, a people who are holy because we strive to mirror your holiness. I pray that you'll help us and give us wisdom 
as we try to follow Scripture in a time where many people are not interested in that. I pray that you'll help us to listen for your voice through your word so that we know what we're doing is pleasing to you. And Father, give us a heart that's willing to withstand criticism from others. I pray that you'll help us that sometimes when we are discouraged or we doubt to reaffirm the power of your word to change lives, that you can help others, that you can transform them the way you have changed us. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to boldly preach your gospel in this community and throughout the world and that you'll bless the work that we do for you in faith. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who is ready to respond to the gospel. We haven't talked this morning about what God has done for you. But what God has done for you is something you could never do for yourself. That is, he has sent his son to be a sacrifice to take away your sins, to make it so that you could have a home and eternal life with him, and that you could be free from those things that you've done. We want nothing more than to help you to be right with God. And if you're ready this morning to take that step, turning away from your sins, the Bible calls that repentance, confessing your faith in Jesus as the Messiah, you can be baptized into Christ, have those sins washed away. If there's a need that you have to do that, or some other need that you have that we can help you with this morning, please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.